0: This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential and the first of a few dispatches from the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. I'm having such a great time here. I'm honored to be serving on the jury, moderating a few Q&A's and covering for us here at Pop Culture Confidential. So the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, now in its 38th year, has 52 world premieres this year and a diverse slate of over 200 films, features, documentaries, shorts, etc. And also an impressive array of filmmaker and industry panels. Writers' panels, producers' panels, tributes, and awards. Earlier this week, Kate Blanchett received the Outstanding Performer of the Year Award. We heard a great conversation with Jamie Lee Curtis as she received the Molten Modern Masters Awards, and tonight, Brendan Fraser will be feted with the American Riviera Award. As we're approaching the 2023 Academy Awards in just a few weeks, these panels are filled with Oscar-nominated artisans, filmmakers, actors, you name it. I'm going to be sharing some interviews from here with filmmakers these coming weeks, and I thought we'd kick off this first dispatch with some voices from the different tribute events recorded on location as they head into their panels. These are some of the incredible Oscar-nominated filmmakers and artisans that are here at the fest. It's been 16 years since his last feature. Now Todd Field is Oscar-nominated in Writing, Directing, and Best Picture for Tar, which features an incredible performance by Kate Blanchett as conductor Lydia Tarr at its center. I asked him ahead of a panel about this performance. Congratulations. For spending so much time crafting Lydia, what surprised you the most about Kate's interpretation?
1: Oh, well, I mean, everything. You know, I mean, you're never ready for somebody to, to show up like that, uh, prepared in the manner that you would have to be for a character like this. She had to learn more in nine months than this character herself learned in 25 years and do it exquisitely well um, you know, I think when we were when we were editing after several days my editor Monica Willie and I looked at each other and just said uh, it's, it's this is Lydia Tarr we're cutting a documentary we didn't see her anymore she disappeared you know she fooled us
0: Talking about original interpretations, I spoke to Ryan Lott as he was about to receive the Variety Artisans Award last night. He's the founder of the band Son Locks, and together with his bandmates, they composed the score of the hugely successful Everything Everywhere All at Once. The film is directed by The Daniels and starring Michelle Yeoh. Now, this was a massive musical undertaking as the film moves in multiple universes and has extraordinary... Extremely emotional relationship storylines between mother-daughter, husband and wife, and some pretty insane storylines too, about, with hot dog fingers and butt plugs, you name it. I talked to Ryan about all this and how they got David Byrne and Mitski and some other huge names Congratulations! Um, it's you. been so interesting to or to listen to Michelle and other people talk about their absolute first reaction to the script. Yeah. I was wondering what yours was. Oh,
2: I thought my PDF was broken. I I, I was sure that I there was something wrong with the file because I couldn't make sense of it. Um, and flipping the page, you know, from you know one to the next, often felt like such a channel switch to that there's no way that this is what they meant it to do <laughs> there was also so much in the film um, that was written on the page that I, I couldn't imagine them doing practically in camera so I actually had a feeling that that maybe this was basically going to be a CGI movie um, and or maybe even animated or something like I, I, I couldn't imagine them doing it in a convincing way practically um, and in camera and it's it's incredible that I mean that's not only but I also think that's one of its one of the reasons why it works so well because they did they figured it out
0: (laughs) and musically what were the first things that came to mind to you?
2: (laughs) the first discoveries that we made were music that felt Actually, quite opposite to most of the film, it felt right to start at a at that very tender, melancholic, um, bittersweet place that the film arrives at emotionally. So, those so we did initial explorations of themes that. Captured, you know, the soul of the movie, and not necessarily any of the absurdity and chaos and confusion and violence or anything like that. So we actually started in a very small, sweet place, um, and then worked backwards.
0: (laughs) What were some of the inspirations that that the Daniels wanted and didn't want? Yeah, and you
2: wanted. It's a good question. It's a good question. One of. one of the things that was amazing about this movie from our perspective is that we got involved so early in the process. We were involved, um, in, uh, we, they, they reached out to us in the fall of 2019 when it was just a script and they hadn't even fully cast it. Um, and, um, so what that meant is we could do a bunch of pre-scoring and does, and they were fans of the band. Uh, and so they, they reached out to us because of that. they, you know we're a multiversal band, I guess you could say, and uh, they had this multiversal movie. So a lot of the music that was temped in, so that's like temporary music that's uh, used in the development of the of the edit, um, was our own music, whether it was from the band Sun Lux or from Ian Chang's solo work or Rafiq Bhatia's solo work or my solo work, um, and then there was a lot of Don Davis's Matrix score, um, so which uh, which was kind of peppered throughout um so it was fun to replace our own music right because yeah. uh you know <laughs> that, was that was just fun <laughs> yeah. it was cool but it, but it, it wasn't it, um it yeah it is very uncommon to 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 do that and then um it was also really fun to write um action music action sequences our own way um not Abandon, it was really, uh, it was amazing to both cloak ourselves in genre and idiom and also work against genre and idiom the entire time. So it's, it's Kind of like
0: the movie. <laughs> kind of like the movie, yeah. Actually, yeah.
2: actually that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so. um,
0: and just real quick, I have to ask you about David Byrne yes, and everyone yeah. else. So yeah. how, how did that happen?
2: And yeah. all the other amazing people that yeah. you got. There were a lot of amazing collaborators on yeah. the score, and they all got involved because the movie, you know, the strength of the movie. They, they saw, uh, in every single case, um, they saw an early screener, and they said, sign me up. Um, and David... Yeah. Was no exception. He said um, it turned my head around. You know, that's what he said. So. And if
0: you're turning David Byrne's head around, you done pretty well, right?
2: That is exactly right. And we had already enlisted Mitsuki, who said the same. And so we had her as our um, in our back pocket to help convince him. Um, it, w- it turns out we didn't need it, but he was he was uh, even more enthused at the idea of not only working on something involving this m- movie, but singing with Mitski. So my dream uh, was writing a song that felt like two songs being sung at the same time from two different perspectives, which was kind of inspired, well, definitely inspired by, by the film um, and the journey... Sort of that
0: by Wayman and...
2: No, mo- more on the journey between uh, Evelyn and Joy, mother and daughter. And so... Um, yeah so I kind of imagined but of course Michelle Michelle's character Evelyn and Waymond it it works as well but um, uh, so I imagined a song in kind of two independent parts that came together in in ecstatic moments and then fell apart and then came together and then stayed together and uh, so uh, this is a life just kind of came out of nowhere really quickly Um, but we were soaked in this movie for a long time so by the time it by the time we needed to like crank out a song, it was it was there. It was already waiting for us. Well,
0: thank you. So much. we're all soaked in this movie too. <laughs> thank you so much. Next up, I talked to Oscar-nominated prosthetic makeup designer Adrian Moreau of Darren Aronofsky's *The Whale*. Moreau has worked with Aronofsky on many films, but this was probably the most challenging and risky of his three decades-long career. His task to transform Brendan Fraser to Charlie, a six hundred pound man in his final days, trying to reconnect with his daughter. Congratulations! You. Can you talk about what was the most challenging when you started this project, and when the script came to you?
3: Oof, uh, the most challenging was to do something, um, to do something that was accurate and that was respectful of people living that kind of condition Uh, unlike other movies that had been done with those kind of makeups in the past where there was always like a little bit of a uh, a filter by the fact that they were often used in comedies and this is not that kind of movie obviously so we so we needed to (laughs) so we needed to do the, the makeup that was real and the thing the other challenge that was really important is that Brandon is the only character in the is the main character in the movie. He's there in almost every scene. He's the only character that doesn't that wears prosthetics, where all the other makeup are, the other characters don't wear makeup almost. So if it reads like a big rubber face, or if it reads like then the entire movie doesn't work. Uh, that was one of the big, biggest challenges
0: kind of research did you do going into this in order to make this happen that you're talking about?
3: Uh, we, uh, I was very fortunate because both Brandon and Darren and the whole production team had done like months of research with a group that's called Obesity Action Coalition. And they had given them like cues about like how, well, the kind of, movement and the kind of condition that people uh, uh, living like that, that I've, uh, are living in and uh, so they gave me all that package and, and they really want the makeup to be authentic and like I said like respectful so I was lucky that they had made a lot of research before I, I even got on board
0: uh, finally talk a little bit about, I know that it weighed a lot it was very difficult to wear can you talk a little bit about the specifics of that yeah
3: well there was another thing that uh, that Darren was uh, very explicit about is that he wanted to, the the prosthetics to be accurate. Not only like in terms of look, but in terms of weight, so that Brandon it would help Brandon finding the character and and, and it, with his movement and stuff. So that was part of the that was part of the, the the construction and challenge. What that did in the end is that the the whole body prosthetics and facial pieces and stuff like weighed over two hundred pounds. <laughs> and we had to devise like some sort of like a harness for Brandon to to uh spread the weight all around his body and uh, yeah like nobody else would have uh, went through that other than Brendan and he did it with a smile every morning
4: my name is Cindy Burnett and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast thoughts from a page we talk spoiler free about their books so you can listen whether you've read the book or not and then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else the importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the authors' lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.
0: All Quiet on the Western Front from director Edward Berger is the German-language film adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's 1929 novel that depicts the horror of World War I. I talked to Oscar-nominated sound designer Marcus Stempler. I had heard that in order to create the palette of the sounds of World War One, they used and were inspired by real letters that soldiers on the front sent home to their families.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, so it all started with the research we did. Um, you know, you want to be authentic if you work on a World War One movie, but then what does being authentic means so we tried to find sonic references of the time but actually we couldn't find any because the you know the sound technology in terms of recording back then was very much in its infancy so yeah we were a bit uh, stuck actually so um but we kept on digging and what we came across were letters that soldiers had written from the front line uh, to their loved ones back home and where they described what they heard at the battlefront.
0: Well, how did those descriptions sound? I mean, what, what what did you get from them?
1: Oh, they're... You know, depending on who was writing them, they were a bit different, um, uh, of course, because it's all very subjective, but one thing that stood out was um, that the sound of war was really, like... Uh, traumatizing and and there were things like soldiers would get panic attacks or uh, what you call it sleep disorder uh, stuff like that and yeah people would write things like well you can close your eyes but you can't close your ears or another thing was uh, people were writing about the, the sound of rotting bodies of dead soldiers or horses on the battlefield, you know, when there wasn't gunshot uh, shootouts going on, but maybe in the night or something when, there, when it was silent and you could hear the sound of rotting bodies. It's just traumatizing.
0: Wow, and, and how, did that, how did you make that sound? I mean...
1: Well, it was mainly an inspiration for us uh, how to think about the sound design and um, um, then we ended up with the approach that maybe being authentic in this film sound-wise doesn't mean like creating the original sound of uh, the tanks or or rifles or something, but the more more important aspect was to create the sounds in a way so they would have the same uh, psychological impact.
0: Yeah, and I understand you made some animal sounds for the tanks and things like that.
1: Well, they ended up sounding a little bit like animals. Um, It was like a, I always call it the singing metal element. Um, So the idea was to add a lot of, uh, sound-wise, to add a lot of metal to the tanks uh, to make, uh, to turn them into these iron monsters, uh, kind of. Because the soldiers, when they first faced them, they were totally terrified by them. So, um, yeah, we ended... It was more like an accident that happened in the Foley department, but a lovely accident. What was the accident? Well, I asked them if they could maybe create some groaning or something, and then they had this, like, large piece of a um, air condition, like a huge pipe of metal. And then, um, you know, and then they had another object to... um, What happens is if you have an object which has like a tiny sound and you put it on an object that has a resonance, the sound becomes bigger. And uh, the object that created the tiny sound was just a toy car. So what they did was they they used a toy car and were driving on this large sheet of metal and then all of a sudden that sound became very big. (laughs) Sometimes, uh, yeah, funny accidents.
0: Thank you so much again. It's a fascinating and really, really strong movie. Finally, I leave you with the wonderful Florencia Martin, the production designer on Damien Chazelle's massive Hollywood epic Babylon. Martin knows L.A. She recently worked on the production design for films such as Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza and the Marilyn Monroe biopic Blonde. In the first question here, I'm referring to Babylon costume designer Mary Zoffries. Congratulations, it's so amazing. I was just astounded by the scope of what you did. Um, I was listening to Mary Zoffries, and she was talking about the immense amount of research and photographs. And can you talk a little bit about your research and what photographs and what references you took?
4: i mean babylon took an immense amount of research first we had to be historically accurate to both the silent and the sound film eras um, and then the history of los angeles los angeles was being formed in the 1920s uh, early 1920s so we looked at a lot of photos from the department of water and power actually has an incredible research library and they really took you know, photos as the city was being constructed. So that was a huge reference for us. Um, Paramount Archival and all of their behind the scene photos of what film production was, what the mess halls looked like, what the dressing rooms looked like, the way that they were building sets and shooting the sets and lighting the sets. So we relied heavily on those. And then for me, there's uh, research about tone and mood and texture. So there was what went into every character and, you know, all of the different styles of houses. Los Angeles has all these revival periods, so um, each character rightfully had their own style of homes. so Eleanor St. James' office was Victorian, Jack Conrad, Brad Pitt's home, was Spanish revival, the big party was Gothic revival, and so every single era had their research to go into it, and so, you know, by the end, we had quite the amount of library. <laughs>
0: Damien Chazelle seems like he had a very particular vision. What was his sort of message to you? How did, what is his idea? Yeah,
4: the way I interpreted Damien's idea was to be really bold and authentic with the period. And I think to me what it meant was there's photography oftentimes of interior design of any era that's perfect, it's perfectly set, the chairs are exactly so. And he didn't want it to feel that way. He wanted it to feel lived in and visceral and like immerse the audience into the story. And that, in that way too, we really looked at characters from all different eras to influence uh, the tone of the film but then in the settings and the architecture we also stayed very historically accurate to everything but we definitely wanted to immerse the characters backstory so that their settings didn't look like, people didn't live there, that it was very, you know. And we also looked at different eras, going back to research, like, for the early silent studio. Um, Those images are actually based on the 1910s. It's early poverty Row film studios, and the why that makes sense is because by 26 they were actually pretty developed. They were already shooting in like glass houses. Um, sat almost like a sound stage made of glass and that didn't match up with the environment and story that he was trying to tell, which was these pioneers out in the west kind of, you know, setting in uh, and building the stage essentially for themselves for the first time. So that's where we mixed in, you know, looking into earlier periods to Add a richness to the story.
0: Finally, I mean, the film is gloriously overwhelming to watch. I mean, especially like me if you have a real interest in, you know, Hollywood and old Hollywood. But I kept thinking, wow, the people that worked on this movie, what was the most overwhelming scene for you that you were like, wow, when you got started with it?
4: You know, it's funny I answer this question differently every time because there's like three or four (laughs) really intense moments. It's like the party or the silent studio or the battlefield. But I'm going to talk about the ending. Which is the underground.
0: Um, oh, that was fascinating.
4: You know, we actually had to change locations because Damien had scripted uh, this big standalone building. And then we had to change to what was like a sewer tunnel. And that led us actually towards a very creative path of looking at underground sewer systems that were being built in the San Fernando Valley and building that from the ground up. We built that on stage 16 at Paramount and, like, you know, bringing that grit and reality of trying to make it feel like you're descending for four floors and you know shifting the same set walls in order to create this labyrinth uh, so a bit movie magic there and and it was pretty fun to do amazing
0: congratulations thank you so much for being here with us on pop culture confidential stay tuned for more from santa barbara coming up pop culture confidential is a part of the evergreen podcast network see you next time
4: coming up on five minute news